This podcast is exclusively created for men searching for greater ways to connect to their queen and children on a deeper level and build keystone habits that will impact and enhance their movement, mindset, spirit, lifestyle, business, and legacy. Fathers of the Future is about the power of true, authentic storytelling with one sole purpose, to build a better dad. My name is Luke Kayem, and I am a father of the future. Welcome back to another Fathers of the Future experience. I am here with the man, the myth, and the legend. How's that for an intro? Coach Dave Bocci. And we're going to start it out like this. Not everybody likes you, or at least you perceive that as well as I do in my own mind. But there's some, uh, there's, there's a lot about you that not everybody loves. I fucking love it. That's why you're here right now. I love it. And I can guarantee a lot of the men who are listening to this are going to love it. But you're okay with not everybody liking you. Absolutely. 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 Appreciate being here, Luke. Yeah. How long have you had this sort of chip on your shoulder? Has it been your whole life or or just in your adult life? (laughs) Whole life. Yeah. Whole life. It starts with you when you're young and it sticks with you. So you are a first generation East Indian, which isn't anything new in America. Sure. But you're a a football coach and you're not just a football (laughs) coach, but you run a very successful football training, sports training program. And your son is one of the top ranked quarterbacks in the state going into his freshman year the term East Indian and first generation and football don't normally go in the same (laughs) sentence. How how did all this happen, man? Tell us a little bit about how your story started. Cool little, cool little way to look at it. That's very cool, man. It's uh, it's the differentiator and I don't, I grew up in Hawaii, man. So I don't look at people with color. Everybody's the same color. Everybody's the same race. They might just be a little bit different. But there's some people who, who look at you and go, what is this guy doing in the sport of American football? Yeah, I think some of the chip is culture, or sorry, is color and, and possibly religion and those types of things. But I also think a lot of it is culture. Keep in mind that it's not just that I'm coming from this background of being an East Indian, but I'm coming from a professional business corporate marketing world, a highly educated world into a space of football that is inundated with uh, people who uh, usually they're, they're ex-athletes who didn't complete a high level of education. They haven't been in a corporate environment. So there's that too. So I don't think that the chip is just, oh, he's an East Indian guy. I think a lot of it is he's a goody two-shoes or he's a process guy or he's pushing us too much. Or he want you know he's trying to put parameters around something that deserves to be more um, you know amorphous or you know and so I think the two things go in hand in hand. There's an intensity though that lives inside of you, and I saw it the very first day. I want to go back to 2000 and possibly nine or ten. I think my son was oh five or six years old. <laughs> And uh, Team Impact was the place to go to give your kids the upper edge in sports and performance. And, and being a high performer and a high performing coach, I'm always looking 
for the additional support and assistance. And uh, I'm looking for an upper edge on, on everything, on, on my competition, on my environment, on, on my upbringing. And I wanted to instill that on my own children. Plus, I wanted them to be coached by somebody else. Sure. And the very first practice, I remember being outside and you were, you were doing you. And that was very, very high level intensity. Were you born with that intensity or did it happen over time? It happened over time. I was a mama's boy. Uh, father was at work a lot. I grew up, you know, my mom treated me with gold gloves. My sister treated me with gold gloves. So I was certainly, uh, you know, a very kind, sweet, polite child. I, I didn't really have this chip. Uh, the chip started in sports. As I entered into high school, I was a late bloomer. Didn't really start playing sports until I was into my teens. Uh, told that I couldn't do certain things and just really was a gym rat and sort of pushed my way into environments, whether it was basketball or football or baseball. But the chip really kind of came into fruition when, you know, my, my, uh, some of the, the things I went through uh, with my father in my late teen years. Um, you know, watching uh, an individual who had given his life to, um, you know, moving here from India and securing a job and taking care of his children and his wife and, and then watching him, you know, have a heart attack, become paralyzed, you know, slowly deteriorate over seven years and pass away. You be, I always say this, I was 16 going on 12. I became 23 going on 40. Mm. So those seven years, <laughs> it was like, you know, it was like that scene in the movie Interstellar when he lands on that moon and like 30 earth years pass. Like that's what it was like. Um, so that really created that chip on my shoulder. And it was, it was less an arrogance, like, oh, I'm better than you. It was more of a... I got something to prove. It was more of a Bruce Lee arrogance. So mm. let me give you an example of what I mean by that. When Bruce Lee wanted to get into the American film industry in the early 70s and chuck norris was actually at the time was a karate world champion david carity i mean these guys were the big guys in american film when it came to kung fu and karate bruce lee's attitude wasn't i want to be just as good as them bruce lee wanted to change the paradigm because that was the only way he was going to get noticed bruce lee if you ever watch his interviews was clearly overcompensating to try to get to try to shift the paradigm. That wasn't even his real personality that came through half the time. He had to do it that way. And if you read on his books and stuff, there's a great quote Chuck Norris has. When Chuck was cast on Game of Death and he went up into a, a meeting with Bruce Lee and he said, look, we're gonna choreograph this fight. I'm sure you wanna, you sure you wanna beat me, so tell me what I gotta do. He said it was really weird because Bruce didn't respond. And he just kind of stared at me and he glared at me. And I kept asking, well, I'm sure you want me to throw this fight. Da, da, da. He goes, let me make something clear. I don't want to beat you. I want to kill you. <laughs> All right. And he goes, that was probably the only time in my life I've been scared. And Chuck was a, the world karate champion. Right. So when I talk about this chip, it's not about disrespecting others. It's about changing the paradigm. It's about saying, look, an, a person of East Indian descent or a person from a corporate world can absolutely make it as a football coach or trainer and can actually bring something that might be even different, better, higher than what's currently there. I'm not trying to be a great 
the next great youth football coach in Arizona, or I'm not trying to be the next great youth football trainer in Arizona. I'm not trying to keep up with the guys that are out there making money and doing well. I'm trying to change. I'm trying to, I'm trying to be at a higher level. That's, that's how I view it. Whether I get there or not, doesn't really matter. What matters is I've set the bar so high that even in failing, I'll achieve something of greatness, right? And that's, and, and, and when I say that, I use the word I, I shouldn't have. It's we, because I'm bringing along a whole group of families with children, with coaches. And, and uh, so it's, it's, it, it feels like you're uh, growing a community. <laughs> yeah. So you're not the only one, you know, whereas Bruce Lee was out there fighting for himself over time. What did Bruce Lee, what was really his legacy? In a way, it was almost fitting that he died young, right? Because what was his legacy? He inspired billions across the world. Still does. Still does. Mm -hmm. From a Chinaman who doesn't want to be treated like a little, you know, nobody, to a world champion Anglo guy who might be the strongest guy in the world who's still inspired by Bruce Lee. Right? Like it says, not he crossed, he crossed, what do you call it? He crosses color, culture, um, I'm not comparing race, to age, like, all of it. No, hey, wrong, listen, man. Like, hey. that's a whole other level. But I think it's a good role model. And I think that in a way, impact is very similar. We are one of the most diverse youth sports environments in the Valley. And when I say diverse, I'm not just talking about color of skin. I'm talking about socioeconomic level, geography, we had a seven-on-seven seven team last spring with 14 athletes from 11 zip codes. Mm. Where are you going to find that in Arizona? Yeah. And trust me, I know when those kids from North Scottsdale show up and their parents see the kids rolling up from the West Valley who's, you know, got holes in his cleats and a, you know, used 19, you know, 85 grand am that he drove up in i know what those parents are thinking on the same token i know what those parents are thinking of the north scottsdale kid yeah i heard it last week in our own football yeah, oh practice. they're soft yeah I oh don't... he can't hit oh he, he's not going oh daddy paid for that yeah right so it works both ways and i actually think strategically luke we are in a really powerful position right because you've got these warring factions right whether people want to admit it or not Phoenix is actually less segregated than Chicago, but we got these warring factions, right? Based on segregation, based on socioeconomic differences, religious differences, cultural differences, color, whatever it is. But in the end, kids don't see any of that stuff. And on a football field, you got to bring it. Yeah. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter. You know, one of my favorite stories was what I used to drive Dominic into down to who, who uh, by the way dominic is coach dave's uh, eldest son who is entering his freshman year and has already started uh football here in uh um, arizona at notre dame prep uh and and he is ranked one of the top 10 quarterbacks for the 2022 class 2023 class yeah, and the, I think the ranking is less important because those things are subjective. But I think it, it's a it's a nod on his back for saying, "Hey, look, you've worked hard. Keep working. Motivates you. You're in good company, right?" So, absolutely proud of that. But the story with him was, you know, he played his first couple seasons as a tackle, 
with groups of kids that were more similar to each other, kids coming from the same geography, the same background. His third season, we, we drove to Levine and he played with a group that was coming from uh, a totally different socioeconomic background, totally different cultural background, religious background, everything. And I think it was like the second practice, he accidentally stepped on a kid's finger. And you could tell that he was really apologetic. And this young man that he stepped on the finger, great kid, but he was emotional and he got up and pushed my son to the ground. And this was a tackle drill. It just said, you know, you, you know, MF and threw him to the ground. And I watched and the coach didn't really do or say anything. He kind of wanted to watch it out. And I thought to myself, one of two things, Luke, I thought, oh, you know, there's a side of me that's saying, what a bad coach. Like he just let that kid do that. That's bullying, blah, 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 blah. Right. That's the protective side. Right. Which we see that all the time. Then there's another side to me that's like, oh, this is so damn good. This is exactly what I paid for. Like, now it's on, right? Now he can learn that life lesson. And then I thought both are right to a certain extent. We have to blend them together. So the funny thing was my son gets in the car and we're talking about the incident. And he says, Dad, I'm, I'm, I felt so bad that I stepped on this kid's finger. And I was like, Dominic, tomorrow when you do the same drill, step on the same finger on the other hand, you know? And... And he kind of looked at me, he was kind of surprised because I've never sent him those types of messages before. So the next day we're heading to practice and I'm, of course, blasting the rap music, trying to get his mindset right. You know, he's, he's like, oh, this is fun, you know. And uh, sure enough, he went out there and, and before he left the car, I said, look, I was, I was teasing you about don't step, you know, please don't do that. But I'm going to challenge you, young man. I'm going to challenge you today to do one thing in practice that gets you out of your comfort zone that says to the other kids on that team, including the coaches, that I am here to stay and you will not push me around. Just do one thing, but you can do it in your way, right? But just do one thing. Sure enough, the practice is going, practice is going. And uh, coach calls out first team offense and brings out his son, who was a quarterback. And Dom was sitting on the sideline and uh, the kid's flipping the ball up in the air. And the coach is calling the play. And Dom sprints over to the huddle, grabs the ball out of the other kid's hand, looks at the coach and goes, I'm here, right? I'm your quarterback. And from that moment on, he was a starting quarterback of that team. And the coach told me later, he's like, I was just waiting for that because my son didn't even want to play quarterback because I wanted to be a receiver. Like, so they were actually setting him up. It was pretty cool, right? Like, and so... He owned it. But, you know, we could have taken a very different approach with that story, right? We could have said, oh, my God, my kid got bullied. Oh, my God, you know, I don't want him around these kids. You know, oh, I'm going to, you know, and I'm not even saying that that's wrong, Luke. I'm just saying we, we live in a society where we don't just let things play out mm. and kind of roll with the punches. want to jump right into it. Right? So, okay, you got hit. Right, you and I are in a boxing match, and I've got my game plan, and I'm gonna hook, 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 and I'm gonna start working my jab and my cross. Well, guess what? First round, you caught me off guard, knocked me to the ground, right? I'm behind in points, and I could keep, I could keep hooking you the rest of the match. I'm never gonna make up ground unless I knock you down. I gotta change my entire strategy, like that, right? So to me. <laughs> That's the best thing you could teach a young man. Yeah. 
you know, and Li- I've seen life you lessons. Do the, you've done a great job with, with your own children doing yeah. that, you know, so life lessons. Uh, you spoke about Bruce Lee and, <laughs> you know, nothing on this show is scripted. Right? The goat. Yeah. The goat. The goat. <laughs> no, no, there's no script in this. This is a open, authentic conversation that we want to flow. Sure. But you mentioned Bruce, and um, in my past few years, I've I've really invested a lot of time and energy on on personal development. So so learning these key secrets from some of the greatest minds uh, ever to walk this earth. And over here on my desk, you see Napoleon Hill's original "The Law of Success." Mm. Well, I read that a few years back, and it kind of opened the path for me. Inside of that book, which by the way was written in like nineteen like thirty eight, uh, it says my definite chief aim and that all human beings must have a definite chief aim. Well, as I began to, you know, research more and more about this, I Googled it and on Google, the only proof of, of somebody doing this assignment in the past was Bruce Lee. (laughs) So we've taken the bullet points and the frame of Bruce Lee's definite chief aim. And now in inside some of my courses, I have my students, create their own definite chief aim. So yes. the terminology, just definite chief aim, is written like 1938. But what does that really right. mean in today? Well, definite means you're certain. Chief means you, the top of the hierarchy. And aim means your target. So I'm going to read you guys what Bruce Lee has written, and you can find this out for yourself online. It's very powerful. And the men who actually do this uh, get power out of it because... There's certainty in it. And, you know, my buddy right behind this wall, who's going to be on the show in a few weeks, has created his own definite chief aim, and he reads it every morning. There's so much power in it. So this was 1969, and it says, I, Bruce Lee, will be the first highest paid oriental superstar in the United States. In return, he's automatically saying what he will give back. I will give the most exciting performances and render the best of quality in the capacity of an actor. Starting in 1970, I will achieve world fame and from then onward till the end of 1980, I will have in my possession $10 million. I will live the way I please and achieve inner harmony and happiness. That is unbelievable. So you talk about changing the paradigm. 1969. That is unbelievable. Yeah. Do you have? It's a, really not if you know Bruce Lee's story, but but it is yeah. when we talk about it as two people in a world of seven billion, right? Yeah. Like, I, I got his autobiography for Christmas last year from a friend, and it, it's written in there. It shows his definite chief aim. But do you have a purpose statement, a mission statement? Do you have a definite chief aim, a code that you live by on a day to day basis? Well. I think I have mission statements based. So for example, with team impact coaching, we certainly have a mission statement. You know, we're trying to uh, get these student athletes high school ready, but also be people of high character, great teammates. So it's a combination of the athlete plus the person, right? Um, I have never really thought about it though, from the overall, who am I? Um, I think we get so caught up in trying to be the best husband, uh, father, coach, friend that we can. Um, you know, 
sometimes we probably need to sit back and do that. Um, I would certainly not put a financial number in mine. That's probably something I would keep separate. Um, however, it, I would, I do have a small goal, Luke. So this, I don't know if you'd call this, it's definitely not as inspirational as what Bruce wrote. Uh, I would love to bring the sport of flag football to India and China. Mm. Uh, I think wow. you've got almost 2 billion people over there. They're probably not going to play tackle football, especially with all the negative press going and, and, uh, but flag is a great sport. And, you know, most people who've played flag and tackle, uh, most kids will tell you that they enjoy them equally. Um, so it's a great sport. It's getting a lot of attention. It's growing. There's no reason why it can't become an Olympic sport one day. Um, and it's real cheap to play. Like that's the other thing is, you know, flag, you just need a belt with some flags, a football, and you could set up cones and set up a field. Whereas tackle, you got to buy expensive helmets and pads. So that's another thing. Socioeconomic level doesn't make a difference. Flag could absolutely expand internationally. And I would love to be part of a group that brought it to India and China. That's very powerful. And speaking of bad press, this was yesterday from Representative Dean Phillips, which, by the way, I talk about this often. I do not subscribe to news both local and global, and you can tell me I'm like a ostrich with my head in the sand, but <laughs> I choose not to surround myself with negative energy. And and from being a kid who grew up in front of a TV and, and during the first and second uh, I, Middle East war, I couldn't get away from it. I literally had a form of a PTSD by watching so much negative energy. So I gave it up when I decided to kill the cable a few years back. But this was actually sent to me as a tweet yesterday. Uruguay today issued a travel warning to its citizens visiting the United States of America, citing growing violence fueled by racism and discrimination oh my God. that American authorities are unable to prevent Fantastic. due to indiscriminate gun ownership. You got to send me that. Do, do you, you have me on Twitter? Do, 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 no. Team Impact coach forward me that. Do you feel? Text me that. Do you feel that America is unsafe with what's happening uh, with gun America's violence? America's most right dangerous now? country in the world. Mm. It's been that way for about a decade, but we're too blind to see it. So my family travels the world twice a year. We get a chance, obviously, as tourists, to be in areas that maybe are a little bit more protected. That being said, we were in Paris, and the day after there was a bombing, we were in Cairo. The day after there was a bombing. So we're well aware that there are dangers everywhere. People thought we were crazy when I took my family to Egypt, you know, for two weeks. Uh, and by the way, I was on the phone with my uncle who's in Bordeaux yesterday on a video call. And we were planning and mapping out our 2020 target. We're packing up, selling our home. We're leaving Arizona, yeah, America. Uh, world trip. World right? tour 2020. I'm going to be following. <laughs> and he said, uh, my mother lives in Cairo. She's 98. And I don't recommend that you go there. So you went. Oh, yeah. It was yeah. easy. Yeah. Well, I think we have an advantage. I kind of look like I could be a local, you know. There's a couple of countries where I could kind of get by physically on appearance. But it probably helps. Um, so I love America. Been here my whole life. This is my country. Where were you born? Um, I was born in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. So... Uh, Harold and Kumar, <laughs> that's, up my, that's up my alley. Uh, grew up in uh, Ridgewood, moved to Ann Arbor, 
most of my middle school, high school was Troy, Michigan. Went to University of Michigan. Moved to Chicago, met my wife. Worked in Miami, back to Chicago, had our first kid. And then moved to Phoenix, and we've been here ever since. America's the greatest country in the world. I still believe that. That's kind of an uh, arrogant statement to say. I get it. But I love it. It's my country. I, there's a reason I, would, I haven't lived anywhere else. But why I loved America was America, to me, is an ideal. Uh, it's not just land. It's not just borders. It's not just government. It's an ideal. It's an ideal that all these people with all these dreams can come from anywhere, and they can make it, and that we're going to create this utopian you know, society. And obviously, it's not. You know, There's tons of problems, and I understand that America has never lived up to that ideal. I get that. But I think that in the past, a lot of the things that were troubling America, the overall consciousness of the nation was smart enough to keep those racial or you know bigotry-based thoughts under wraps. And the idea of keeping things under wrap, the reason you keep something under wrap is you keep under you keep something quiet for one of two reasons. One, you keep it quiet, but you really believe in it. But you keep it quiet because you're afraid that if somebody else knows that you think that way or you do that act, it's going to hurt you. But then there's a second reason why people keep keeping quiet. They keep things quiet because the hope is that over time it will go away because they're embarrassed of it, right? So I think America uh, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and a lot of people argue with me about this, but... I think they were embarrassed of their slavery history. And a lot of times why you're not reading about reparations and they're not proactively attacking the issue is because they're not quiet because they, when I say they, I'm just talking about a loose majority, still want slavery. I think it's because they kind of hope that it just sort of starts, it's an ugly mark on our past and we want it to go away. Just like the British with colonization in India or you know, building rail, you know, who built the railroads in Africa, you know, the Indians and British or and Africans, right? Like, so almost, you know, just like, you know, Jews with the Holocaust and the Chinese Exclusion Act in America, which is a really bothersome part of our history, right? I mean, people wonder why there's Chinatown. There's Chinatown, not because the Chinese wanted to create their own little towns, because they were redlined into it, hmm. you know? And so, you know, America has an ugly past, just like every country, but I think up until the last decade, and this isn't a Trump thing. I think this goes beyond that. I think it was Obama, it was, Obama, it was before Obama. It was Which, by the way, if this is your first time on the show, that is the first mention of our president in <laughs> six episodes. So this is not a natural yeah. conversation no. we will be having here. No, no, no. And, and, and I don't, I'm not even going there. But the... I think that that you've got now everything's kind of coming up to the surface, right? So <clears throat> can this you, epidemic be solved what you know, we're this, seeing the scary right thing, now, right? Is you actually believe it or not, this is how dumb we are. There is an argument right now happening on social media between I'm just going to say it bluntly because we're real. Yes, you can. Between black people who want to make sure everybody knows that there's this really scary epidemic of, of Christian extremist fundamentalist white people who have created all these mass murders, and they have their facts. And then there are white people 
who are screaming about gang violence and how blacks kill blacks and why is that not an issue? And it's still a mass shooting because it's four plus people. And then the black people come back and go, well, that's different because it's blacks killing blacks. And the white goes, well, I thought black lives matter. And then, and it is the dumbest argument I've ever heard because here's the truth at the end of the day. There shouldn't be either. (laughs) There shouldn't be... Mass shootings, and there shouldn't be gang warfare. And you can't say one... You can sit here saying one is worse than the other. Fine. They're both horrible. Right? They both don't belong. You know? And I guess, like, sometimes I throw out some things on social media on purpose where I say, well, why not give the Asian man the keys to the kingdom? Because you don't ever hear an Asian person say, well, you know, we had uh, mental health issues, which is why we, you know, went bat crazy and shot up. You know, I joke. That's not what I mean, right? I think, Luke, two things go hand in hand. When I grew up, education was everything. My parents preached it. And whether you call this arrogance or not, the belief was that you cannot make it to a certain point of your life without education. And that the people that were more educated were the ones who had the right to speak, the ones who were going to make more money, the ones who were going to live in nice houses, and the people who didn't have that education, they needed to go get it. Well, I don't necessarily think that's fair either, right? But that was how we grew up. Now, it's completely inverted, right? Like where there's actually like an anti-intellectualism movement, right? You've got, especially in a place like Arizona, you've got so many people who didn't even get through high school making four or five, six hundred thousand dollars a year saying, well, you know, fuck you, Dave. We don't need that. You know, I don't need to go to Harvard or Michigan. You know what? There's a beauty in that. But we've become lost because whenever you go too extreme one way or the other, we become lost. Our lack of education in the highest positions, whether it's influencers that are coaching kids, teachers, people making money, spinning their minds on social media, politicians, whatever it is, they don't have the education, the diversity, and the worldview to be speaking the way they're speaking. And their opinions, while I respect their you know, amendment rights to speak up, are flat out stupid, <laughs> you know, because they're not coming from a place of education. So you see how you can't have an anti-intellectual movement and expect everyone's going to make rational decisions moving forward. It doesn't work that way. The two things are related, whether we want to admit it or not. And there is a certain truth to higher education means higher understanding. Mm. Very powerful. Now, education could come in many different ways. You're an extremely well-read person. You might not have gone back and gotten your PhD, but you're educated. You might even be more educated than, than people I know that do have their PhD. I never let my school get in the way of my education. Mark Twain, uh, one Great of my favorite quote. quotes Great of all time. So when I say education, Luke, please understand, I'm not saying like you need to go to Harvard or you need to have a PhD. Or, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about you're constantly opening your mind and your door. The greatest coaches are coachable, okay? The greatest teachers are teachable, right? Bill Belichick, actually, I think uh, he was speaking of Nick Saban, who I think actually started through his system. He said, what makes Nick Saban so great is simple. He's coachable. Wow. Right? That's that simple. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, you look, uh, let's talk about Nick Saban just for a minute, because... 
you know, I brought up Bruce Lee, and it's easy to say, well, of course Dave looks up to Bruce Lee. He's Asian. Well, let's talk about Nick Saban. I look up to Nick Saban. He's not Asian. Nick Saban's five foot five. Nick Saban didn't even win a major bowl game as a football coach until he was 53. Nick Saban never even had a team that won 10 games until 2003. Nick Saban uh, did not have an illustrious athletic career. Uh, Nick Saban's been fired from God knows how many jobs, right? And now who is Nick Saban to the football world? A god. Right? I'm sure you can make the same story about Bill Belichick. I'm sure that's why guys like Belichick and Popovich are so kind of quote-unquote awkward socially when they get in front of the mic. I'm not saying they're awkward off the camera, but you know the way we view the world. Because they probably realize like they're probably at a level where they're just kind of like looking down <laughs> and going like, you know, not even worth. I've been there. I've, I've, that guy that you just fired that you're ripping on in the media, that was me 20 years ago. Right, like, so I had a moment like, like that. Nick yesterday. Saban would have been fired. Yeah, <laughs> he would be yeah. out of college football right now. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, I had a moment like that yesterday where you talk about like you know these two guys in front of the media. Mine was a little bit different. I I, I truly felt socially awkward, and it was in not just one environment, but it was two. And I'll I'll preface it like this: I went from my son's uh, football practice where there's a group of parents to my daughter's soccer practice where there's a group of parents. And, and first week, I don't really know these guys very well. And uh, both times I found myself off to the side, <laughs> sitting and reading. And it wasn't that, and they were all talking and they, yeah. they were all socializing. Yeah. And I had a dad come over to me and say, hey man, you don't have to be over here by yourself isolated. <laughs> you can come and sit with us. Uh, I and I said, uh, thank you, man. I, I appreciate it. I'm, I'm just kind of in the zone right now. I'm, I'm in my own flow. And I said, but I'll, I'll be around. You Do know? you remember a few weeks ago when that same incident happened and you were at Giovando's training with Cannon, right? So you could say a very similar thing. A smaller group, right? Mm -hmm. Do you remember what I did? You came over and did burpees and I ran with me. With you, <laughs> yeah. right? Because I recognized that I actually thought it was cooler what you were doing. Yeah. So, uh, I think it's Buddhism that teaches this. It, I think Buddhism, I think all religions get way too much credit for stuff, but I think it was Buddhism that taught this. So if I'm wrong, I apologize to the, to the other religions, but they talk about coming, uh, living many lives and that you're reincarnated. So I know it came from a reincarnation religion. It might've been Hinduism, but the idea is that each time you come back, you come a little bit, you come back a little bit more wiser. Mm. All right. And so uh, some some individuals, some souls may be on their 800th life. Some mm. souls might be on their first life, yeah. right? And so I could run into somebody who might be 70 years old, but he may only be on his first life. <laughs> I could run into a little baby who might be on his 60th life, right? And then that wisdom is going to come through and how they view the world throughout the course of their lives, right? You, my friend, are a special man. And you are probably one of those people who is well into your lives and you may not even realize, I don't, you know, I don't know what religion you practice, but I would like to think that I'm, I've lived a few lives. And so maybe the incidents with my dad helped accelerate that. 
So, so I got to stop you right now. Go ahead. As we need to focus on that conversation. <laughs> I ask every guest on this show, what was their relationship like with their dad? <laughs> and, and where are they now in that relationship? Yeah. I've shared story of, of loss and death about my mom already uh, in a few yeah. episodes in. And, and it truly makes me who I am. Tell us about your dad and what your relationship was like and, and how those seven years were for you and ultimately yeah. what happened with the course of, of his life and, and really just take some time to honor him yeah. and how you got here through him. That's really cool, man. Thank you. Um, my father is, you know, he's a pretty amazing story. I mean, he, he grew up one of 11 children in uh, Calcutta, India. When India got its independence, his family moved across the border <clears throat> uh, from Bangladesh, settled in a place called Kordha. He was one of the younger boys. His father was a school principal. And uh, early on, he was just another kid. He, he wanted to be an athlete. He wanted to play soccer, actually. So India had uh, a really good soccer teams, and, and he was pretty good at it, I heard. Um as he got older, he realized education could help him escape. His dream was to go to London and get educated. So his dad being a school principal, it was obviously easy for him to learn the process, right? And at the time, the highest, you know, the way it worked back then was you would study all year and take one exam. And you, those were your marks. So everything came down to one exam. So to pass that exam, you had to get a 60%. And my father... Uh, the highest exam scores that were ever recorded in West Bengal, and you're talking about millions of students, right? This is one of the most populated places in the world. The, the highest score ever recorded was an 84. My father got 91s across the board, wow. right? 91, 94. So he was, he actually has a medallion that we saw growing up. It was the only trophy ever kept. It was uh, the number one student in West Bengal, wow. right? So you're talking out of millions, right? So he was offered a full ride wherever he wanted to go. Uh, he, he chose Oxford, but ended up at uh, London School of Engineering, Cambridge. Uh, came out of that and got a civil engineering job in America. When he was in college, he went to visit his family one summer. Uh, so the story goes. Uh, he was eight years older than my mom. My mom's, the age gap was so much that my mom's grandparents were best friends with my dad's parents. And my dad's uh, parents loved my mom when they first met her. They were like, she is the sweetest, you know, prettiest little girl, right? We have to marry one of our sons to your daughter. And so the grandparents kind of negotiated back that whichever of our, your sons is the most successful is the one that gets to marry our daughter. So, you know, a time went by. I think they thought my dad was going to be the last son. They called him... Um, Babu, uh, Babu, which means the baby, but then they uh, they ended up having another one called Chotu, which means the little baby. So, uh, but I think he was like the accident. So I think my dad was they were kind of like, all right, you're the one, you're gonna marry. So my dad came back for the summer, and I'm, I know this is a long story, but I love this story. Um, and there was a party, you know, it was, it's a big thing when I, somebody from the village goes to a school in London and comes back home. So the whole village is there. They're serving ice cream and having food and there's a tent set up and there's three four hundred people there to celebrate and because when he does something like that you represent your village like you're not just representing yourself you're representing your village came back my mom was there 
and my mom like instantly fell in love with my dad just thought he was the you know whatever the cat's meow right but my dad didn't say anything to her or anything and she felt really bad about it she was eight years younger i think she was like 20 or she was like 18 he was like 26 so Two years later, <clears throat> my mom catches wind that my dad just finished college and he's coming back to India and that they're betrothed and that she has to marry him. And she was very hesitant and she said to her uh, grandparents, you know, he, he doesn't really think I'm that attractive or special. Like I was there at the party and he didn't say anything to me and blah, blah, blah. And they said, you know what? Tough luck. Suck it up. <laughs> you're getting married. You're getting out of this village. So... They get married and, uh, you know, the way it works is like after like the process of the marriage, the long process, three days of fasting, all this stuff. Then they get, they get into their like, you know, their first night together. And my mom tells a story and it gives me goosebumps to this day because it so perfectly depicts my father. You know, they, you know, they, they, they have their moment of intimacy and then they, they kind of, you know, my dad kind of turns to the side and takes his glasses off, puts them on a nightstand. My mom kind of says, the way she says it, that he huddled to one side, so she kind of turned and huddled to the other so their backs are against each other. And she kind of felt like he was just going to sleep. And she kind of went in this moment of just pure sadness, right? Like, oh my God, like, I'm, I'm now like married to this guy who doesn't even like me, right? Like, I'm done with like, like this whole dream life I lived. So she's like, and my mom, this is where you get to know me. Like, if you know what, I don't hold back. This is where I got it. That's why you're here, man. Yeah, I don't hold back. My mom, my mom doesn't hold back. Like, so if something's on her mind, she's going to say it, right? God bless her. I love it. I'm so glad she's that way because otherwise you get stressed, right? So she just, just like, I just like, I had enough. She's like, I, I grab the bed sheet. I, I, I go, and, I, and in my language, I just said, yeah, I just yelled at him. I go, like, you don't even love me. Like, when... That time three years ago when I came to that party, you didn't even see me or even notice me, right? My dad, like classic dad, turns around. He was a man of very few words. And he just says, purple Benarossi, sorry, gold lace. And what he had said was he had named the exact dress that my mom was wearing two years ago at that party. <laughs> Classic, right? yeah. And <laughs> oh, goosebumps, right? Like when I heard that story, I was like, damn, right? So why do I share that story? I share the story because it kind of tells you the dynamic I had between my mom and my dad. My mom was there every day. She was, the, she was my love. She was everything. She taught me passion and love and work and all this stuff. But my dad was like this iconic show up once in a while, see him, took care of the family, but he was always working, really nice person. I can't really tell you what he was like, okay? That burns at me a little bit because I always felt that when we got older, I would have kids and we would sit down and we would do the classic Indian where you kind of sit like your back's hurting after a long meal and you talk, right? What happened with your dad? So, uh, you know, my dad... Worked as a civil engineer and uh, was in and out of jobs and was looking for a job. So he was home. And uh, let me do this. Uh, when did they come to America? So they got came married. Came to America in the early 70s. I uh, had my sister in 1973. She's three years older than me. Myself in 1976. Moved around, excuse me, a little bit in the beginning, which is classic. You, the Indian story, the Indian immigrant story is you almost always start on the East Coast 
like around New Jersey, New York, and then you kind of make your way west. That that was kind of how it is. Almost every Indian family you meet uh, will have a similar kind of journey. Quick and, and they came from education, right? So education was the key that brought him here. It wasn't athletics or entertainment or, you know, that, that generation, right? Now, our generation is different, right? Confucius had a saying, the first generation builds an empire, the second generation... Uh, Sorry, the first generation builds a foundation, the second generation builds an empire, the third generation fucks the whole thing up, <laughs> right? So right now I'm in the second generation and I can almost guarantee one of my kids will fuck the whole thing up, right? Like it's just the way life is. And I will fight like you will yeah. to make sure they don't, yeah. but you can't control them in the end, right? So um, settled in, you know, long story short, settled in um, a metro Detroit city called Troy, went to high school, went to college. University of Michigan, my sister and I. I was 16. I came home from high school. Dad, dad was proud that you were both in Michigan? Yeah, dad was very proud of my sister, who was a valedictorian. Um, he kind of thought I was an academic fuck-up. <laughs> like, I'm just being honest. Yeah. I, mean, I was about a 3.7, 3.8, but I liked art. I loved sports. And to him, that was a failure. Like, if you got less than an A, it was just not. I mean, now he wouldn't say it to me, but he said it to a couple of his friends who told me later which was a really hard thing to hear, but I was glad they told me because, you know. That was his truth. Uh, Yeah, but that being said, I was his crown jewel. Like when I was born, my mom said that was like, like, okay, we're done. Like I just wanted a boy, right? So I'm sure it came from a good place. Um, So timeline, you're born in 76. So maybe that sentence I just told you is why I'm so hard on Dominic. Hmm. Okay, maybe. Maybe that's where that comes from. And we're going to get into all three kids here in a minute. So 16 years old, I come over from high school. Uh, I was held over late. Um, 17, I'm sorry. I was held over late for school because I had to finish something. Normally, I would have come over from school, grabbed a snack, left to go play sports with my friends. But I was late. So I walk in the door, and my dad's calling my name. But the way he's saying it doesn't really have me freaked out or anything. And what is your non-American name? Well, my legal name is Devashis Chomok Bagchi. Chomok is the middle name my dad gave me. and um, Devashis. Yeah, Devashis Chomok Bagchi. So Devashis is the blessing of the Lord. And then Chomok is the name my dad gave me. I can't. I think it means um, like calm. I, I got to look it up. I can't remember. For the longest time, I thought I meant sandalwood. But no, I think it's more than that. <laughs> the, uh, um, so he used to call me Chomok. So that's why I tell you. So he, he was like, Chomok, Chomok, Chomok. But it was like slow and it wasn't, I wasn't quite sure. So kind of followed it and uh, I could tell it was coming from the bathroom. Really, we have a really, we had a really small bathroom downstairs. This was for like the guest bathroom. And I kind of opened the door, it was unlocked. Um, so I kind of push it forward. And when I push it forward, his body is against the door. So I'm like, Jesus, oh my, you're right? Like, and it's right against like his, neck and his back so I kind of closed the door and uh, those details are very important I'll tell you in a second why um, so I call ENT they come he had had a heart attack he fell forward onto the sink had you know a mark fell backwards against the door they couldn't open the door in order to open the door they had to break it open um, a couple of days later, he, he survived the heart attack, but a couple of days later, they realized he was paralyzed. Uh, the whole thing actually went to court. And me being honest, told a story. 
and the hospital said there's no way of knowing whether I broke his spinal cord mm. or the EMT did. And we lost a $48 million judgment. Plus, you had to live with the fact that someone else yeah. said I'll be honest, I'm might... glad we didn't win that judgment, Luke. Yeah. I really am, because it would have fucked us up. Yeah, hell but yeah. I don't need that. No. So, But how <laughs> long did you carry the fact that somebody else said you might have been the one to break your dad's <laughs> spinal cord? <laughs> I never gave it a moment, because uh, I knew it boy. didn't happen. Yeah. I was there. I was smart enough to know the way I opened it. There's mm. no way. I, I opened it so softly. Mm. There's no way. You knew. Now, it could have happened from hitting the sink, yeah. too. That was another... Right. So, I mean, look, people have their reasons, right? So, you know, he slowly deteriorated over seven years. It was really hard to watch. And, you know, I don't know if you know this, but people, when they become paralyzed, it's a very hard life. It's not just the paralysis. You just become very susceptible to every disease possible. You start having issues with seizures. You start having issues with muscle definition and you start you're getting rashes and bed sores and all these things happen. You just deteriorate slowly over time. It's very hard to keep people that go through that healthy and active and alive. And like, he was the type of guy where I could tell his spirit was broken because he had just lost his job. Now he made sure that my sister and I still went through four years of college while he was going through all this. So it was pretty intense. You know, my mom was an autistic school teacher for 35 years it was her salary and health care that paid for the whole thing. Um, we had nurses that would come to our house and steal. Um, I mean, it was a crazy period. How did you not turn when you were 16, 17? So, you know, the, the fatherless childhood of mine, when I finally got to high school, <laughs> and I was like, nobody's watching over me, nobody's checking me up. Right, like I was driving at 14, man. That little white Mercedes, I was driving that in eighth grade because nobody was checking me up. Mom was out of town, nobody was there. So as soon as I, I got a taste of the other side, the dark side, if you will, I ate it up. Yeah. And it took me a while to shift back. I don't think you ever lost touch with, with your dad or your mom or your family and your upbringing. Yeah, mom and sister get a lot of credit. Grew up in a nice area though where the people of our community my friends they really helped us out i remember spending weeks at friends houses you know no questions asked whatever you need you know um so it, it certainly wasn't something i did on my own um i did get a little bit of that rebellious phase when i got to college so another part of it too was uh, I probably wasn't exposed socially to some of the things you might have been in high school. I was exposed more to it in college. So socially, I was a little bit of a later um, in a way. I mean, like I wasn't like I was social in high school, but I just love sports. So my social life was, hey, let's go play basketball. <laughs> like, you know, it's like I just loved it. You know, it wasn't, um, oh, I want to sit in my room, but it was that was what I loved to do. You know, um, so you're 16 when he has his heart attack and is paralyzed. Paralyzed. And yeah. how long did he live in for? About seven more years. Died near Chris, uh, December 23rd, 1999. At that point, uh, I was off on my own. I lived in Chicago. Um, he died literally two weeks before I met Rennie. <laughs> Your wife. Yes. And so. you guys met at school. 
No, we met, uh, we were both working. We met at a house party, nothing super <laughs> exciting. <laughs> but yeah, it was literally... It's the equivalent of meeting online nowadays. Yeah, yeah, we exactly. met at a house party. House yeah. party. We, we were dancing yeah, to Dr. Sorry, Trey no, the Chronic and... No, uh, no amazing story there. Yeah. But uh, yeah, you know what, Luke? Um, the hardest part is not the loss of my father. Yes, the not having those conversations hurt, hurts. Not having him around hurts. Not having him to ask, Dad, I just lost my job. What do I do? Right? Dad, am I being too hard on Dominic? Dad, am I being too hard on Andres? Dad, am I making a good decision by putting my money in this place? I don't have anyone to talk to about that stuff. I don't. I've got a great group of people that have acted as older brothers and fathers to me. But my personality makes it hard for people to get to this level of depth because I know that I can mask it and be a little bit overwhelming, right? Yeah, I had phantom mom syndrome for a few years after my kids were born, where on a Sunday, I wanted to, I literally thought of like, oh, I can't wait to call my mom and tell her that my son just walked, or I can't wait to call her and tell her. Yeah. And, and I, would, I would literally, in the beginning, I would just mask it and be like, no, nah, no, nah, you didn't feel that. And then after a while, I'd go, there's an energy there. There's, there's something in the universe that's calling me to her spirit. And you talked about religion before, and, and I, I don't align or assign myself a religion. But I also don't close the door on anyone. Uh, you, you talked about Buddhism, and, and I believe there's so many great pieces in that. And what I won't do, and maybe this is the Buddhist way, is say that that's not right. Sure. Because that's truly closing the door. Exactly. But I had to go deep into this spiritual connection with my mom, and I've shared this a few times. It took me 10 years to put a picture of her up on the wall in my home. It literally took a decade. And I finally was in the closet going through some stuff, and I, I put up this, you know, this memoir photo of her from about the year or so before she passed away. But instead of saying, oh, man, she, she's not here. I can't call on her. I, I decided that when I feel that, that I kind of just have a conversation with her. Yeah, and and it's more internal than external. It's not out loud into the universe, but it was just like, I feel you. Yeah, and I want to share this runs. with you. So does this happen to you? I've gone on jogs and literally had conversations with my dad, where he's spewing stuff at me like I wouldn't have thought of that. Mm. Like I don't even speak that way. <laughs> like, like I'm on a jog and I'm asking him a question, and he gives me some wise over-the-top answer where it's like, where did that come from, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> I didn't even know that was stored, stored in the memory bank. I mean, not to, I, mean, I think that we, we, we grow up, regardless of religion, with this belief that there's a spirit that's out there up in the clouds and once in a while that comes down to kind of visit you and say, hey, Luke, what's up? I actually believe more in the it's within you, so mm. it's always with you. Yeah. And that makes biological sense too, because you were born inside that yeah. person and that other person was part of that. And so I feel they're always there. It's just, those are the moments where they feel like you need them the most, like footprints, right? And so maybe in a way parents are God, like, I, I don't know, like, you know yeah. but it's, it's interesting, man. You know, I, it's, it's so, I faced death a lot in my life. I mean, we literally just lost our dog who was three and a half years old, you know, it was like, Every time we lose somebody, 
I always in the back of my mind come very quickly to it was meant to happen and here's why. I think the greatest souls that inherit this earth come in, they knock the fucking door down, (laughs) they inspire an entire community of people and then they die young because their job is done. Mm. We are the best fucking dog on the planet. And that's not even an exaggeration. He couldn't have done more in three and a half years. And that's how I come to fruition with it. My dad, Bruce Lee. The yogis talk about Alexander a, certain, the Great. a certain amount of breaths that we all are given. <laughs> yeah. And at some point, you, you no longer have those breaths left. Well, let me ask you this. I'm going to get personal. Because I could tell you my answer to this. You walk out this building today, a car hits you, you're done. You have three seconds to think your final thought. What is it? I changed history by not following in my dad's footsteps. It's a positive thought. Yeah. Same here. Mine is I did everything I could have done. You're also the first guest who's asked me a question. And I've been wondering and waiting when that was going to happen. And you asked it at the profound time where I didn't have time to think. Unscripted. You asked me. I said it. And I started to feel the tears bundle up. Because we often go through life just getting through going next, 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 next. But you asked such a powerful question that I want you to ask again and ask it to the listeners. Because... It made me think. It made me go deep. And I didn't create this massive answer. It was an instantaneous answer that caused emotion. So ask the listeners again how you did it. Let me give you a little context as to why I asked the question. I think that for a long time, I feared death. I feared it. Me too. Oh my God, I, I still have so many things to do. I, oh, what are you talking about? My house isn't big enough. I, you know, wait a minute. I, I'm never going to see Dominic do this. I'm never going to see Andres do And then I realized like, like, no, wait. Like, if I truly believe that my presence is going to last, you talk about legacy. Mm-hmm. If I truly believe in some form of legacy or spirit or then why should I fear, right? The only thing I should be afraid of is that I didn't live my life to the fullest, right? Yeah. So those days where I don't do anything, I get so mad at myself, Yeah. right? I'm like, oh, stupid. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, those days where you're like, I can't wait till tomorrow. It's like, really? Yeah. Well, what about today? Right? Yeah. Well, today, I'm just going to Netflix binge watch today, right? Some day uh, is not a day of the week. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we'll ask... I guess you asked me to ask the, it's just basically, look, if something was to happen to you, you God will, you got, uh, you got three seconds. That was the key right there. Yeah. Yeah. What's the last thought that goes through your mind? Yeah. And make it positive. You know what, um, you know, my darkest fear is this really sucks. You know, my deepest fear is my dad's not proud of me. Hmm. That uh, just really gets at me. I mean, you really want to know where that chip comes from? Yeah. That's where it comes from. It's yeah. not about race, religion, this, that. It's just, I took this path, and it's such a different path than he took. Yeah. Did I fuck up? Yeah. 
like, should I be some doctor somewhere making half a million dollars a year with, you know, I sees your kids an hour a day and goes golfing on the weekends with his buddies and nothing wrong with that. But was I supposed to be that guy? Yeah. So the same way you said you believe, you know, this about all human beings having a certain amount of breaths. I believe that human beings who choose a path that is not uh, up to par to other people, but it's their path is all that matters, yeah. right? Like, yeah. you know, the fact that you're truly living the way you want to live, and we're going to get into that right now, as a full-time coach who's running a business and also has three kids, yeah, Dom, your oldest, is on the path to playing collegiate football. That's the target right now is get through high school and go to college to play? That's a, that's a good question. I just wanted him to be ready for high school because he loves it. Yeah. So obviously I know it would be hard for it'd be hard for any kid to go to high school and love something and then not get a chance yeah. to excel at it. Yeah. So I feel like that box was kind of checked. Like yeah. he's definitely ready and he'll do his best and whatever happens, happens. I think the college question is a little different for me, Luke, because, you know, on the outside, people will say, well, he may not have the measurables. He may not, you know, but to me, I look at it like if he wants to play college, fine. If he wants to play professional, fine. Maybe those things happen. But to me, academics is a doorway as well. So whatever his dreams are, as long as he's excelling, whether football helps him achieve them or academics, He's going to live a stable life. He's going to do the things he wants to do. And even, look, as much as we all love sports and football, you're lucky if you have a football career that lasts past your early 30s. Yeah. So, you know, let's hope he lives a long and prosperous life. Football is a fraction of that life, right? So to answer your question, I mean, that would be the goal. Yes. I mean, so and now his dream is to go to West Point. So I don't know if playing football at West Point is what he's thinking or or if he just wants to go. I know he wants to serve. You know, it's his, he has three passions, his dog, his football, and, 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 and then World War II. So that's, you know, that's... Uh, so that's Dom's on the path. He, I, I would say he's yeah. on the path, yeah. What about your second son? Tell us a little <laughs> bit about him. Oh, he's the best, isn't he? <laughs> he's got a huge heart. He's just the best. They're so different. I... Uh, Andres is extremely talented. So I've always said that Andres is more intellectually curious, whereas Don's more of your book smart type kid. Every kid, I mean, they, that's just a generalization. Andres is one of those kids that um, he's going to just one day hit a jackpot, but the process to get there is going to be like, what? Like, <laughs> you did what? You know, he's probably going to, right now it's chef. Right? So I don't know if you know this, Luke, but Andres Cooks has an Instagram channel, some pretty unbelievable stuff. I'm talking like Russian bell cheekies and spaghetti Share, carbonara. Right now. No, no, no. What's the Instagram it's channel? It's Instagram, Global Chef Andres, A-N-D-R-E-S. Yeah. It, it, and he is the one who runs it, so he, it's his post, so I can't tell you when he did his last post. But, it is. But uh, he's on there. Name some of the things he's cooked on there. I don't, I don't oh man, it. let's see here. Uh, made uh, blini with ground meat and That's onion. a Russian crepe. Holy cow. Celebrated my birthday with four hours of football camp, a sleepover, 
My sister made me brownie Sunday. <laughs> yeah, that was holy. A, cow. That was a tonight's bit. Sunday dinner is boneless pork shoulder ribs. Oh, are you kidding me? I had no clue. Oh yeah, Jamaican spicy beef patties, wow. carbonara. How did you know that Andres was different when he was born? Other oh, circumstances in which he was born. In. So remember, we were talking earlier about if you die young, it was probably meant to be. I think when Andres was born four months early and, you know, diagnosed with some pretty, you know, severe brain damage. The doctors did their job, right? They told you, you know, here's his odds and, you know, just to live a normal life, right? And this takes me back to like shifting the paradigm, right? And your life was meant to be. So instead of Renny and I saying, hey, Andres, you just got to learn how to keep up with the other kids, why can't you run like these kids? Why can't you throw like these kids? Why can't you get straight A's like these kids? We've never done that to him. Never. Because we we kind of call ourselves witness, like an audience. We believe that we're getting given an incredible gift to raise a child that's going to have a pretty special and unique life. So it's our job to just sort of enable and empower. And hopefully we don't... We, I actually... I actually stress, Luke, that I don't support him properly. That's my stress, is that I'm not the dad he needs. It's not what Andres doesn't do. It's, am I doing enough for him? Whereas, let's be blunt, there's a lot of dads out there that if he was their son, they'd be like, why are you so slow? Why can't you run? Why can't you throw? I'm going to get you in this with trainer. He is out there at Team Impact football camps. The slowest kid, right? The least athletic kid representing my brand, right? And I'm actually sitting here instead of saying, oh my God, I, I hope he doesn't embarrass us. I'm sitting there going, I hope I do a good job of raising this kid like because he's special, you know? And I just made that decision up front. Rennie and I were like, look, if we're going to raise this kid, could we get a chance to take him off life support? I don't know if you knew that. No. Yeah, we're called in at one in the morning. We had a chance to take him off life support. He was, he had suffered a massive brain brain hemorrhage. It's so beautiful, man, for you to say that, just knowing him for this many years. And to the listeners who don't know, everyone on this show has had something, right? You know, whether it was a challenge getting pregnant or a challenge going through a divorce but your story is definitely Andre's story with you and oh, your He was family. the guest speaker at the ribbon cutting for the opening of the Phoenix Children's Hospital NICU unit. Wow. You know, we, we gave a 10-minute speech, and right on cue, he did his little cry when I asked him to. I mean, he's a little stud. He's been on radio marathons. He, you know, but we have to, as parents, I think, make sure we don't define children too young and give them the space to grow. So Andres is very musically talented. He, but look, he could come to me tomorrow and go, Dad, I don't, I don't want to cook anymore. I don't want to play piano. Don could come, I don't, I don't want to play quarterback anymore. I'll be like, great, you just saved me a bunch of money. Like, <laughs> like, 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 Fantastic. What's, but what's the next thing, right? Because yeah. we're not going to sit on our butts and do nothing. We're not going right? to settle. Yeah. And then, you know, Corinne, she's, Corinne's a lot like Camille. She's a little dynamo. You know, yeah. she's 
rock star, you know, yeah. and when, you know, when you call Camille a rock star, like she's a rock star, yeah. like, and people don't, if they don't know you, they think, oh, he's, you know, everybody says about their, no, like, and you can see it like those kids that have that charisma and that magnetism and that talent and it just screams through and, you know, uh, Corinne's sort of at that edge where she's starting to come into her own and, you know, whether it's, you know, sports, she's really into musicals, like she was in The Lion King that they performed, uh, so she was a little background monkey dancing, like it was pretty funny and cute, and, but she took it very seriously. I think that's the important thing, Luke, is whatever my kids do, I really want them to take it seriously. That's sort of what Team Impact's about. Like, wh whatever you do, let's take this seriously. Now, the mistake I think people on the outside make is like, oh, he's pushing them to do... No, but you're here. As long as you're here, let's take this serious. Just like this podcast. As long as I'm here, let's take this seriously. I'm not looking to be a radio personality, right? But I'm, I'm sure as hell going to try my best when I'm here. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you coach me. And we're going to try to get as good as we can, right? And that's no different. Do the best with what you got. Yeah. Yeah. Cannon, you don't know what Cannon's future is. He could be a quarterback. He could be a baseball stud. He could be a great speaker. He could go in front of Model United Nations. He could help homeless people. He could move to Italy and live in a house in Lake Como. I mean, you know what? He could build an app. He could be an artist. You, you don't know. Yeah. You know, I remember when I met my mother-in-law, who I love. I love my parents. I love my, my, my wife's parents. But they come from a very old school, my parents as well, they come from a very old school way of thinking where there's a lot of uh, bigotry that's hidden, right? Like about things like um, race and, and, and sexuality and, and, and religion. And there's a lot of like, you know, it's, like, you ever want to meet someone racist, meet like an old Asian person. Like they're, they're it's pretty crazy. And uh, so I remember challenging them like well what if your son grows up to be you know uh transgender uh tr sorry transsexual uh uh and he wants to work as a um waiter at a restaurant and he never wants to have kids and like, how is that going to change your view of your son and i remember the individual saying well that would never happen and it just stuck with me that they responded with such confidence that that would never happen. As if that is like this evil thing, like this, this worst case scenario. And like, I actually felt bad even asking the question because I was like, I was trying to come up with the most <laughs> worst case scenario. So I actually feel bad that I even said that, right? Like, so I would turn the question now to you and me. And I think we have the same fear. Our kids growing up to live in a white picket fence house in a non-diverse suburb with a job that takes them nowhere, with a wife that doesn't even love them, with kids that they see one hour a day, would be the worst possible scenario. <laughs> Am I right? Totally. The worst. Yeah. I would rather Dom or Andres or Corinne be out of a job in their 30s trying to figure it out than that, right? It's opposite of our parents' generation, yeah. oh, right? Completely. Opposite. There, there's an Indian mystic who you might know, Sadhguru. I've heard the name. Yeah, he was doing an interview a few months back, and I was listening to it, a podcast interview, and he said, 
your children's legacy is not your legacy. Stop attaching yourself to them. And as a guy, a man who grew up without a father, who has this young boy and daughter who wants to infiltrate them with all this shit that I experienced, yeah. I had this revelation moment of what I experienced and went through as a child yeah. is not what they're going through. And I can't expect that my life's purpose yeah. now is theirs. See, so you and I are very similar um, in the fact that we're bringing baggage to fatherhood right and so we're got, also got extremely a heavy bag, involved it's a heavy bag we're extremely involved yeah right but we're thinkers and we're open-minded so we probably constantly i ask myself did i go too far did i push too much am i going to be there for him does he really want me there right have i done this the right way um I think time will tell, yeah. <laughs> right? It's a science experiment. Uh, For the dads listening right now who, who may be in the early phases, right? Yeah. You've got a freshman in high school. I've but here's got a the alternative. Grader. Here's the alternative. Okay, so say maybe you are some blessed guy who's able to walk that perfect line. But the alternative is you go the other extreme where you're not involved. And maybe your son comes up onto a radio podcast just like this and gives some bullshit story about how he looked up to his dad. Really? Yeah. I don't really even know my dad. Yeah. You know, my son and I, we have real conversations. Yep. We talk about in things that, like my embarrassing moments, you know, when there's a rap song that comes on and a certain lyric comes on, we kind of look at each other and fist pump and laugh. You know, when a, somebody is calling me and they're on the Bluetooth and, and my son listens in. Yeah. He'll actually tell me afterwards, Dad, that's what that guy really meant. Yeah, yeah. He'll school you just a little He'll bit. He'll school oh, me, yeah, because yeah, yeah. he, he, they have a different perspective, right? Because their mind's not as cluttered. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times, and I probably shouldn't even say this, but a lot of times when these impact parents call, I, I want my son to listen in because he becomes like a voice. He helps me with a lot of political situations. Because he doesn't see the, the drama attached to it. He sees it as a clear outcome. Yeah, he yeah. tells me, Dad, you, you make two mistakes in your business. One is you're too open and honest with too many people too quickly. So you leave yourself susceptible to shots. Yeah. Um, which I think is very wise for someone his age to say that. Um, and then he said, the second thing is you, you undervalue what you do. Like you, you should be charging hundreds of thousands of dollars, yeah. you know, to, the, to what you do because you're, you're life coaching these kids. Yeah, and if you put it into perspective, yeah. he's probably right on both ends to a degree. Well, let's look, well, let's look at real numbers, right? So we ran a football camp. Uh, one week was about um, 20 hours. So it's four hours a day, 20 hours. You paid $199. So it's essentially 10 hours, $10 an hour. And yeah, there was a large group of kids, but there was also a lot of coaches and What's the babysitter rate nowadays? It's about, I think we're paying 14 right now for one who drives. Okay. And yeah. does the babysitter make your kid a better football player? <laughs> uh, no. Is he giving them life lessons? Uh, no. Is there, are they an adult <laughs> with actual like education and background? Not at all. So what is the right price for that camp? Yeah. Should it have been $600? Yeah. $30 an hour? 
And how would the market respond to that? Right? Um, so you do it because you got to play the market too, right? That's yeah. how it works. And in the end, you make it's fine. I mean, the camps and do you great. do it because you love it. You like, do it because you love it. And yeah. and I'm look, I'm gonna be honest with you, camps make good money for us. Yeah. I mean, they're they're very important. They help pay for a lot of the things that we then do after the camps, which don't make us sure. a lot of money. So know? give us a little shameless self promotion as we wrap up yeah. this experience with okay. where people can find you, absolutely, and how their kids can get involved in your amazing program, which both of my kids have been involved in and will continue to be. We're going to be starting a speed course here in the next couple of weeks. So just give so us a little Sunday. information on both your social media and your website. Yeah, you can learn about us at teamimpactcoaching.com. You can learn about us on social channels, Facebook channels, Team Impact Coaching, uh, Instagrams, Team Impact Coaching. You can find out about our alumni that have graduated through the program at Team Imp- Instagram, Team Impact Alumni. Uh, and if you want to hear my voice specifically, go to Twitter. It's Team Impact Coach. Um, my advice to people with social is um, parents are on Facebook. Coaches, recruiters are on Twitter. Athletes, trainers are on Instagram. All right, easy way to think about it. Um, in terms of where we're at, we are probably Arizona's largest youth football development organization. I can probably confidently say that. Um, this year alone, just 2019, we've already worked with over 1,000. Um, when I say work with, means an athlete between 7 to 14 years old, boy or girl, who's been participating in one of our programs. Our programs are extensive. We have clinics, camps, competitive teams for fives and sevens. But our mission is clear. We will prepare your student-athlete for high school football. That is the main mission. Or whatever high school sport they choose to play. But we will also make sure that they are a tremendous student-athlete. So my point in that is how do they shake a hand? How do they speak? Are they coachable? Are they respectful? Are they a good teammate? Do they have good work ethic? And proof is in the pudding right now, Luke. We've got um, our first seven Kids that graduated through Impact 2015 have college offers. They're in the graduating class for next year. That was a small opening group we had. Uh, 2022, we have, uh, I think, 11 of the 50 kids that ASU uh, invited to, uh, to their campus as the 50 best football players in the state for their class. 11 were Impact athletes, alums, kids who played you know, trained with us, played flag with us, played seven on seven with us. And going into 2023, which is Dominic's year, we have 24 graduating athletes going to 14 different high schools. And I am in contact with almost every one of these high school coaches. I am well aware of where these kids are at. And I am proud to say that almost 20 of them will be starting, right? Almost guaranteed to be starting, right? So starting at significant type positions, usually these are quarterbacks, receivers, running backs, uh, linebackers, DBs, safeties. Um, we don't get a lot of linemen that come through our program. That's not because we don't want them, but linemen typically they don't want to do speed work and they don't want to do uh, that type of work. So, but we're you know our doors are open. And you um, had an amazing a national article on USA Today on why you chose Notre Dame High School prep for your son, but a lot yeah. about how you've trained him up to this level and what yeah, the a process. parent should be doing and looking at yeah. about picking a school. So, you know, Arizona's open enrollment, right? So if we were not in an open enrollment state, you would, we wouldn't even be having this conversation. But in Arizona, you can get on that 101, and within 20 minutes, you could probably drive to 15 different high schools. And the differences in these high schools is very minor. So 
if football or sports is an important part of your child's high school future, um, you know, come up with a list of schools that are convenient for you to drive to and start checking them out. I would start even as early as sixth grade. And here are some of the things you can do. You can call a school and set up a tour. The school loves that. They will, they will take you and your wife and your child around the school and, and you get a feel. Classroom environment, you see some of the kids, the way they walk, the way they talk. We did tours at several schools. Saguaro was one, which is a tremendous football school. It just wasn't the feel that Dominic wanted. Nothing wrong with the school. Fantastic school, right? But by doing that, we did both ourselves a favor, right? We did them a favor, right? Because they're not getting a kid who, who's, you know, not flowing or clicking, and we're not doing that to our kid. Then a lot of these high schools, they start running football camps, youth camps. They're open. They're, the AI allows it, right? They're coaches on their field coaching kids. Some of these camps start as young as third grade. You'd be a fool not to send your kid to these camps. They're typically 40 bucks, 50 bucks. Some are free. They usually last a few weeks. And you, as a parent, get an opportunity. Don't go there expecting your kid to get all this hype and attention. Who cares? Of course the coaches are going to be nice to your kid. Of course if your kid's got more training and talent, he's going to get more attention than the other third grader who's just there to have fun. Great. Don't buy into that, all right? But go there and evaluate the coaches. Watch the camp because that practice that coach is running is probably very similar to the practice he's going to run when your kid goes there. So you can see how they run a practice. And by the way, that first day they might be nice to everybody, but by the second, third day, a football coach is a football coach. Yeah. Right? It's like the it's like the scorpion and the frog, right? Yeah. After all, I'm a scorpion, yeah. right? Like so that football coach, if he's a yeller or if he only cares about certain kids or he's playing favorites, you're going to see it at the camp. I saw it at the camp. We went to a football camp where there were 50 kids. And 20 of them were great athletes. There were six African-American athletes. At the end of every camp day, the coach would name the six MVPs. Every day he picked the six African-American athletes, even though they weren't even as good as the other 14 kids that I told you about. Why? Because they were trying to recruit those families to that school, which is hogwash. I'm not allowing my kid in that environment. That's yeah. bull crap. Yeah. Color shouldn't matter either way, right? So... To me, it's like learn. Go out there and learn. The coaches, according to AIA rules, they're not going to build relationships with you off the field, but they're allowed to have some initial exposure with your son or daughter during that camp. And then talk to other parents. Talk to parents of kids who go to the schools. They're not all going to sell you. A lot of them will tell you the truth. They'll tell you the good things and the bad things. You know, like I could tell you... Um, Saguaro High School is one where the parents are phenomenal. You get so much great information from the parents. They got a phenomenal football community. Um, uh, you know, Arcadia, I didn't have that same feel with the parents. I, I couldn't get as much information. Right? But ultimately, you um, guys settled on a co-ed all these schools, Christian private school. Yeah. And talk about changing the paradigm. <laughs> That's what you're doing. And, and it's, it's not just you, but your family is as well. Yeah, I mean, we kind of look at it like Notre Dame is a great school. We're blessed that we have the opportunity to go there, but we're also bringing something to the table. We're helping their diversity rate. <laughs> we're bringing them a hell of a quarterback and a good young man and a good family. 
Right. And so, which is all you can ask for as a coach. Yes. Coach in a school. So I think it's a win-win for everybody and also the type of family that knows that he's got to earn it. Right. So uh, I feel great. I'm dropping him off. I'm not involved. I I'm trusting the process and he is as well. And he feels great and things will play out. You know, if it's meant to be, it's meant to be whatever that B is, right. That B might be, you know, especially a quarterback where there's only one guy on the field. It might be your star, your freshman year, you get hurt, your JV sophomore year, you never touch the field your junior year. And then you're back to being a star your senior year. You never know. They all go through ups and downs, even the, the greatest ones, right? So just stick with it, stick with the journey. But Team Impact's about getting your kid ready and then getting you, parent, educated so that you understand the process. You don't feel so helpless. You can call the, you, Yeah, you can look up all that stuff, but here's the best thing you can do. Here's the best thing you do if you're a parent of a young athlete. Ready? Call or text me, Coach Dave, 480-246-9462. Call or text me. We will have an enlightening conversation about your athlete, and you're going to leave that conversation knowing a lot more than you did going in. And, and this is a true story. When we made the fundamental decision to go into tackle football after you know, 12 years of uh, flag, 12 years old, we, we had you come to the house and you sat us down and you gave us such an insightful, educational, informative hour of your time. You know, I, I only bring people on this show that I know offer and deliver value at the highest possible level and not just in their story and their message about how they became a father and, and how they grew up, but more importantly about what they do now. Because we're not bringing our past with us, we're leaving it behind. But in doing that, it brought us to this place. And I respect you and I honor you and I thank you for your time, for your energy, you. and ultimately for you being a father of the future. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate you, brother.